Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a production of Journalista Podcast, LLC, and iHeartRadio. See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine, the most addictive form. You think it's the glamour drug of the 80s? Well, that's the point of this fronted little reminder. It can kill you. And if you've got to die for something, this sure as hell ain't it. Say no to drugs and say yes to life. What would I do if someone offered me these drugs? I'd tell them to take a hike. Punk. Welcome to the Journalista Podcast. When we first met Cookie, she had just picked up a pound of weed and stood in front of a firing squad. She survived her Mrs. Scarface era, got her job at CBS because she partied. And the party never stopped. In this episode, it might just kill her. I want to warn you, some of the things you'll hear in this story might be hard to listen to. I know it was for me. But before we get to that, did you ever think to yourself, for my next vacation, I want to go see a bloody civil war? In Nicaragua, they called it revolution tourism. Any dignitary, any famous person throughout the whole war years, anyone that came to town, whether it was to make a movie, to check out the revolution, just to be a tourist, because it was a tourist destination during the war, because the war never made it to the capital. It never went into Managua. Well, since you're talking about that, let's just go with that for a minute and talk about some of the crazy people that you got to meet up on that floor from presidents to... Presidents, prime ministers, people in Reagan's cabinet, rock stars, movie stars, actors, writers, directors. We had Jackson Brown staying there with Daryl Hannah. Cookie just got me and my wife third row seats to his concert in New Orleans. Great time until my car got booted. Richard Gere came through, Peter Gabriel came through, President Jimmy Carter and Miss Rosalind stayed on that floor with the Secret Service. Jesse Jackson came, Chris Christopherson, different actors. We had Ed Harris, Marley Matlin. The funny thing is that everyone was there doing something, but at nighttime, everybody also heard that the place to be was at that CBS office on the seventh floor at the end of the hall. And so people would just show up. We had U.S. newspapers, Miami Herald, Washington Post, New York Times. We had direct dial telephones to the U.S., all the things that the rest of the country and the rest of the people did not have access to. We had the famous new fax machine. We had balconies where people would come and lay out, sunbathe, in the middle of the war. So it was a very eclectic crowd. During the day, it would mostly be journalists coming in and out. 
Was CBS unique in that way? NBC, ABC, they, they didn't have that kind of NBC setup? had their offices in the same hotel, a floor above us, but they weren't the cool people. At six, the offices closed. Even the NBC people came down to hang out at the CBS office. I think it's because I was running it. I bet you had a nice bar. And I, bet you- I had a set-up bar. I had something new that had just come out. Well, we started the war with Walkmans, and then CD players came out with little bitty speakers. And that little setup could cost five, $600. I was the first one to bring it to the country with all the latest music. Oh, we even had cable TV. I don't know how they rigged that up, but we had that. It was just the place to be. Come six o'clock, you know, everybody would come down for cocktails or come up for cocktails. Did you go out at night with some of these people or go to bars and clubs? There were bars, there were clubs, there were discos at the time. Sure, we went out. Well, what was the craziest experience you had with somebody who'd came to visit there? It's so many of them. One night we're out there by the pool and U2 was there. They were on a fact-finding mission. A lot of people would come just fact-finding missions. They wanted to see what the revolution was all about. That's how I wound up there. I was just graduated from Loyola, and I wanted to see what the revolution was about. It was a common occurrence. Just like congressmen and senators would come to their fact-finding missions. And so you 2 was there, and uh, I sent the table some drinks, and then they asked me over, and we started to talk. And even though it was nighttime, they wanted to take a tour of the city. We went around uh, with my driver in Nicaragua, it's points of direction. Up meant towards the airport, down meant towards the cemetery, east, west, north, south, and then points of direction where the coffee house used to be, 10 blocks north, three blocks south. I still don't understand it to this day. I kept telling them that the streets had no names. Bono just really couldn't understand it. How, how do you not have names on the streets? And I said, I don't know, it's called POD, Points of Direction. He just got the biggest kick out of it. Many months later, you know, that song came out, Streets With No Name. I don't know if there's any connection, but I just thought it was funny because he was really just thrown for a loop that how could you have a, a whole city with no street names? The debate still rages about that song and what city U2 was referring to. Not much doubt in Managua. Time magazine weighed in with a story titled, Postcard from Managua. How far are you from the place Bono sang about? A year after Irish rocker Bono visited Nicaragua in 1986, in an effort to raise awareness about Central American war refugees, U2 released its smash hit album, The Joshua Tree, and Nicaraguans immediately recognized that one of the songs was written about their country. Twenty years later, most people here still hold as fact that Where the Streets Have No Name was written about Managua, a squat and sprawling capital city where, well, the streets are unnamed. Stephen Kinzer, a former New York Times bureau chief based in Managua in the 1980s, accurately describes the fine art of giving directions in Managua as a Socratic technique based on first determining what the direction asker knows, then working backward from there. The funniest part about giving directions in this corner of the world is that some streets actually do have names, but no one knows what they are. In a press release, ad agency McCain Nicaragua said, This unique and unreal aspect of Managua's life caught the attention of and inspired Bono, the lead singer of global supergroup U2, to compose the hit song Where the Streets Have No Name after visiting Managua in 1986. The campaign is focused on adding street signs to Managua streets and identifying these locations on Google Maps by tagging them with historical information. You told me about a one particular friend that has become famous in the news in the last few years, um, Randy Credico. For people who are listening to this, Randy Credico is now known for being the go-between between between Roger Stone and Julian Assange. Correct. And getting Hillary's emails and that sort of thing. In the Russia investigation at this hour, new details about the relationship between a longtime Trump associate and WikiLeaks. We now know the name of the person who was the go-between for Roger Stone and Julian Assange. Manu Raju is out front on Capitol Hill. And Manu, you're breaking the story. What more are you learning at this hour? 
Yeah, that's right. Roger Stone revealed to the House Intelligence Committee the name of this intermediary, a person who had contacts with Julian Assange during the campaign season and who also had conversation with Roger Stone himself. And the name of the individual is Randy Credeco. Now, Randy Credeco is a New York radio personality who did have conversations with both Stone and Assange during the campaign season. In fact, they were guests on both of his shows. He was a comedian, and we don't we don't know him that way. Although when he did a lot of his appearances, you know, on the news, interviews he was quite funny he would funny. try to make jokes yeah and he was almost on the cusp of becoming successful but he chose to be a political comedian and his politics were always way left and he was thrown off the Johnny Carson show for telling a joke that they told him not to tell and the way we met he was hanging out at the Intercontinental Hotel because he always liked to be in the middle of things and he saw me walking through it wearing a little hat and a a pretty floral cotton dress. And under his breath, he says, where does she think she is, on the east side? And I looked at him and I said, no, I'm in Managua. You're on my turf. Where are you from? That's how the friendship began. And for the next 12, 15 years, every time he'd come to Nicaragua, he would stay in my quarters or the office. He'd hang out. And he became just a fixture among all the journalists. Some of them liked him. Some of them hated him depending on your politics. He loved to just hang out and be a part of everything. He was the comedic relief during those war years. He could make you laugh no matter what. Casually count, you had 300,000 Iraqis killed by the Allies and you had 148 Allies killed by the Allies. (laughs) And Bush is still working on the guy's name. Satam Hassan, Satan Hassan, Sandino Hasidic. We are not at war with the people of Iraq. We are at war with the Iraqi people. (laughs) He could do impressions. He could do Reagan. He could do Ortega. He could do anybody. Isn't it ironic, though, that he's sort of defined himself with the far-left politics and comedy and ends up being a tool for the right at this time of his life? Because he had no idea that that's what was going on. I told him from the beginning, I said, you're going to get in trouble if you're dealing with Roger Stone, Julian Assange. Oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And here we are. Man. He's still struggling because of all of that. It's important to note that before all this bullshit with Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, Randy Credico had dedicated his life to helping the poor, expanding public housing, fighting mass incarceration, criminal justice reform and so many things that matter to everyday Americans. And I want to honor that. You know, one time I was sitting in a Chili's in Abbeville, Louisiana, with the wife and kids, getting ready to order some burgers. In walked four guys dressed like commandos, carrying AR-15s. You know the types. For some reason, it reminds me of this story. Another kind of tourism. It's a crazy story. So all these years... Everybody's covering war. Everybody wants the big story. And we all knew what the big story was. It was just proving it. And the big story was U.S. involvement in trying to overthrow a government. We all knew it. And everyone knew what was going on. You can't prove it. You can't take film of it. You can't take video. You can't take pictures. One day we're summoned. The journalists are summoned by state security, a U.S mercenary working for the CIA has been caught trying to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. We knew it was going to be a dog and pony show. You know, they're going to make a big deal about it. At that moment, you don't know what it's about. We don't know what it's about. It could be something big. But remember, we would be called to press conferences all the time. You never knew what the story was going to be. So when we get there, you've got this obviously American guy looking very scared and very distraught, sitting next to heads of state security, the secret police. Sam Hall was a silver medalist in the 1960 Olympics in Rome and a former member of the Ohio House of Representatives, which makes the story even crazier. The uh, state security guy makes a statement, and his name was Lenin Serna. He proceeds to tell us how this is an American that's been caught near the border, trying to infiltrate and do some terrorist acts on Nicaraguan soil at the behest of the U.S. government. So everybody's thinking, oh, ooh, wow, this is 
this is big. So Lening Serna tells the guy to give some background on himself. Well, right away, I'm like, who's told by their captors, can you give background on yourself? Obviously, he had been questioned and interrogated by them. So the guy starts to tell us how he has worked covertly for the CIA and for different places in the world. The Washington Post reported on Hall's arrest. Sam Hall, an American, claimed he was on a spy mission after he was arrested last month in a restricted military area near Managua. Nicaraguan officials said after Hall's arrest near the Punta Huete Air Base, 13 miles northeast of Managua, that he had maps of the installation in his shoe. Hall said at a news conference in Managua that he was spying on military installations on behalf of three men codenamed Tinker, Evers, and Chance. He also claimed in a CBS News interview that he was the only remaining member of the Phoenix Battalion, which he described as a counter-terrorist paramilitary organization. And he says that he went to the Six-Day War in Israel, but he got there on the seventh day. Well, everybody starts either laughing or they can't believe what they're hearing or they're not understanding what they're hearing. (laughs) And he says he had been an Olympic swimmer. And, I mean, the story just kept going in all kinds of different directions. But he had been caught with a map in his shoe. And he said he was just using it for his arches. I mean, this guy was just coming across as a bona fide kook. This is not going the way the Sandinista government thinks it's going to go. This guy has no connection to the CIA. This guy is not working for the U.S. government. This is some kind of lone kook out there on a great adventure. You ended up in Nicaragua inside a Sandinista army base, arrested, captured, whatever, stopped, held. Got to put it real bluntly, they said you were crazy. Anybody in this business has to be a little bit crazy. The reason they were saying that, I was never allowed to say. I had to sign a disavowal agreement in 1984. The CIA says, and I've talked to them, says you weren't reporting to them, but of course that's on the surface. But that's part of the disavowal. I knew I would be disavowed. I didn't care. I'm looking at the head of the secret police, and I'm looking at him, and I'm just shaking my head and kind of making a motion across my neck, saying, cut, cut, cut. This is not going the way you guys think it's going. All of a sudden, the head of the secret police stands up, says that's the end of this press conference. No more questions, no more anything. They quickly took this guy away. So you're basically signaling to the head of the secret police that this is fucking nuts. This is nuts. This is not a story you want out there. And he's looking at you going, oops. He's looking at me the whole time for guidance, because I don't think he spoke good English. And so when I make the motion, cut, he knew cut. He didn't know why, but he knew cut. And then, of course, he found out that this guy was a kook. Mario called him a wannabe spy. That's what he was, a wannabe spy, a wannabe mercenary, a wannabe. That was it. That was kind of a thing, too, in Nicaragua, wasn't it? Yeah, just like the people would want to fly there to check out the revolution— you know, famous people and politicians, you also had nutcases trying to be a part of the story, just like you had people that playing like they were journalists. It was sort of a free-for-all. It kind of reminds me of like right now where these guys put their flak jackets on and play like they're like military and they're walking around in Starbucks with the AR-15 and yeah. Except it's in Nicaragua and it really is a war going on. Yeah. How did it play out? Do you remember? I, I think that they just let him go. That's hilarious to me. It, it was just an insane story. You know, the weird thing about this this particular story, it's a very small little footnote in a very big, bigger story, but the head of the secret police is taking a cue from you. I thought that was funny, too. I sort of felt like... You had to help him? I need to help this guy. He's drowning here. And he doesn't even realize that he's drowning. I don't know if Sam Hall was full of shit what the fuck he was doing in Nicaragua. But he was a self-proclaimed patriot and freedom fighter. Sound familiar? Coming up, Cookie gets arrested. And that's the easy part. We'll be right back. In 
recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome back. Cookie's been living the high life for a long time, always managing to stay a couple of steps ahead of the law. Her luck is about to run out. Obviously, you were always out in the world. You always had your party favors with you. Correct. But usually when I did stories, when I was in the field, I wasn't partying. Well, on this one trip, I forget what crew I was with. I do remember what producer had been flown in. John Sisaloff was his name. You might remember him from episode four, when he had to file a bullshit story about Cookie's helicopter crash under pressure from the Sandinistas. We're in the middle of nowhere, in the mountains somewhere. Covering what? Just looking for a story. It wasn't all the time a big story or a breaking news story. The day-to-day was usually just covering your ass, looking for something, possibly stumbling into something. I don't know where we were, probably some shithole. Now remember I had a little weed in one of those plastic film cases. We'd been smoking, you know, the crew, myself, not the producer. He was a really straight-laced kind of guy. A soldier apparently smelled the weed, whether it was on myself or the crew or somebody. And they decided she's got drugs on her, which I did. It's just a little weed. So when we get back to the barracks, he rats me out. All of a sudden, I'm confronted by the head of the battalion or whatever it was, and he says, we know you have marijuana. Your crew was seen smoking it. We're going to take you in. Probably should remind people that there are very strict drug laws in Sandinista, Nicaragua. Yeah, there are no drugs. I would have to import drugs from the United States to Nicaragua. The next thing I know, the commander and I guess what they call their MPs come grab me by both arms and they're going to lead me away to, I don't know, jail, whatever, on the base. And I know at that moment 
I've got this plastic film case on me and I got to get rid of it between right now and wherever it is they're taking me. Now remember, we're in the middle of nowhere. This is all every man for himself. Oh, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge kind of thing. So as we're walking, I don't even know how far I've got to walk, but I know I got to act quickly. I play like I trip to get the film case out of my pocket. So now it's in my hand and I'm being held by my arms, not by my hand. And I've got both fists clenched so that it doesn't look suspicious. And so I know that I have to fall again and get rid of this film container and somehow get rid of it. I can't throw it because they'll see it. I make myself fall again. And as I fall, I make sure that I take that film case and just bury it in the mud. Because again, we're in the jungles. There's no roads, there's no highways, it's just dirt. And then I got up and I'm acting like I hurt myself and they're all trying to help me, the soldiers. So they take me to the Comandante. I, of course, call the guy that turned me in a liar. You know, he must hate Americans. When I'm with the Comandante and he's searching me and everything, I said, listen, all you need to do is make a call to the president. What president? President Ortega. And he'll vouch for me. And they're like, listen to this one saying, what, call the president? I said it would behoove you guys to get in touch with someone that can get in touch with the president. And they're like, yeah, right. I need you to contact President Danielle Ortega. And I just kept saying it over and over. And I remember one of them said she's still high. She's claiming she knows Danielle Ortega, the president, our president. And I just kept saying it over and over. And finally, somebody must have said to themselves, there must be something to this. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but it would behoove us to follow up on it. And I saw a couple of guys leave where they were holding me. And I would say about 40 minutes later, comes walking in the producer and we're being escorted out and set free. Guess what they did? They contacted President Danielle Ortega's people, and he told them to immediately, if not sooner, let her out. You guys are in trouble. <laughs> they got in trouble for doing the right thing. That was probably the only time in that guy's life that he talked to those kind of people. Yes, yes. And then John Sisaloff, and I thank him till this day, also rest in peace. You know, I begged him, please don't turn me in to CBS because I'll lose my job. He also knew that he could lose his job because he allowed these shenanigans to go on. He never said anything. Obviously, the crew never said anything. After that, they treated me with kid gloves. The producer you're with, he obviously didn't smoke weed. He wasn't a... No. He wasn't the kind that you were partying with. No. He was a Quaker, in fact, or a Mormon or something like that. Oh, my God. I just found my new sitcom idea, Cookie and the Quaker. Yeah, but he he didn't turn me in. And the reason I think I could get away with all of these things, especially with CBS people, is because I made them all look good. The stories I got for them made them look good. So why get rid or risk getting rid of the one person that always comes through for them and make them look good? Yeah. What did Dan rather say? My secret weapon in Central America. That says it all, really. Nothing else need be said. Yeah. That was it. Nice to know people. It was very nice to know people. And to this day, I still know people there. And he's still the president. (laughs) Cookie talks her way out of another jam. But her wild ways are getting noticed. The Sandinista government is watching her. So one day I'm in my office, there's a knock at the door, and it's this guy, I've never seen him before, and he's not dressed in a military uniform, he's dressed as a civilian, and he says he needs to speak to me. About what? And he says, well, can I come in? This is a very delicate situation I need to speak to you about. And I'm like, sure, come on in. And he proceeds to tell me that he works for state security, that there's problems with drugs. And I freak out. I said, I am not involved with drugs. I do not party. I do not do drugs. Here, take my blood sample now. You can have it tested. If if he had done that, it would have (laughs) been off the charts. 
He says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I said, I understand. You're accusing me of something. He goes, I am not accusing you of anything. You need to calm down and let me explain why I'm here. I said, okay. He says, by the way, my nom de guerre is Jughead in Spanish, Torombolo. That's what, you know, you could call me. And he says, this is the problem we are having right now with you. We have rounded up about 20 of these society kids, you know, for drugs, dealing, uh, partying, whatever. They became too obvious. So we've got about 20 of these people in jail. Well, what does that have to do with me? He says, well, you know them. I said, well, I know a lot of people. He says, yeah, but they're all saying your name, that they hang out with you, that they party with you. I said, I know a lot of people. I grew up with a lot of these people. They could say whatever they want to say. Maybe they think it's going to get them out of trouble. He says, I still think that you don't understand why I'm here. The reason I am here is that we, as the government, have no problem with you partying. And I'm just like slowly going into shock here. Is this some sort of ambush? Is this some sort of test? He says, we know what you do. We don't have a problem with it. In fact, if you need supplies, we could furnish you with party favors whenever you need. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, this does not sound right to me. He says, the other part of the problem is that besides these people saying your name, we can't have that. We cannot have people in jails saying your name and that they party with you. So what we're asking you is a couple of things. To please be more discreet, stop partying with known people that could possibly get in trouble with us, just party quietly, party with your journalist friends, stop partying with the society kids. And again, he says, uh, I reiterate, if you ever need anything, so you don't have to go out there publicly looking for merchandise, contact me and I will supply you with whatever you want. And I'm like, are you serious? Is that, are you basically telling me government sanctioned drug use and you'll supply it? He says, that's exactly what I mean. And I am your contact and I will be around keeping an eye on you from a distance, and you could call me anytime, night or day, for anything. And we became very close friends. Within six months, he was partying too. <laughs> we, we drew him over to the dark side. So you corrupted him. Absolutely. I tend to have that effect on people. <laughs> I corrupted him. He was my guy for years. You said a lot of crazy things in this podcast. That's insane, right? That's that's pretty far out there. That is. I mean, and I couldn't have asked for anything better. Okay? Was I, there was there coke good? Well, yeah. <laughs> anything I wanted. Weed, coke, anything. I did know that they had wiped out drugs and drug use in the country. Well, it's kind of funny because you know, you're in Nicaragua, you think you'd be able to get great drugs. Nothing. Impossible. How did you? How did you? I get... would have to fly to the U.S., <laughs> buy my drugs, import them into Nicaragua. <laughs> I heard you had a couple of little clever ways of getting them in. Well, sure. If it wasn't myself, literally flying to the states and bringing them in myself, I would get other journalists. They would bring their own and share. You know, I would get family and friends in Miami to drop off clothes and videos and dolls to the CBS office and CBS unknowingly would ship stuff to me, not knowing that. So you were, you were sneaking cocaine in through clothes, dolls, tapes. tapes. And when I say tapes, I don't mean the CBS tapes. I'm talking about MTV, you know, stuff that I would get people to tape for me. Here's a thought. Do you think Tomas Borge knew about that? I would probably think he did. Is it easier to smuggle coke out of the United States than it is to smuggle it in? Absolutely. Because I knew that nothing could happen to me. Nothing. And then let's say I got caught. You think I would have spent one moment in trouble? I had Jughead. 
She has Jughead. Why doesn't that sound comforting? Well, it certainly sounds like Cookie has it all under control. Nope. Her life is about to change, and she might just lose everything she's fought for, including her life. We'll be right back. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Cookie is about to meet one of the great loves of her life. The question is, will she survive it? Buckle up. So I know you've been married a few times. You've had many romantic adventures in your life. I found Mr. Wright 33 times. <laughs> but there was one guy in Nicaragua and Central America that you spent a lot of time with that you were very close to. Let's talk about John Basco. Tell me about who he was, what he did, and how you guys got together. John worked as a cameraman for NBC. His specialty was war. He was always being shipped to war zones. And then for a time, he was constantly in Nicaragua and El Salvador as well. You know, he had been told, when you get to Nicaragua, you have to go to the CBS office. That's the chick that is going to be your best connection, not just for business and the news, but she's going to be your best connection for anything else. She and her office are the place to be and to be seen. He came down and introduced himself one day to the CBS office. I thought he was cute. I'm going to say right now, he kind of couldn't take his eyes off me, and I, I could tell. She was running the CBS office, and so she was a hot tamale, you know. What drew me to her was her great physical beauty, really. And she was tall and slender, and she was real pretty. She was crazy and, and wild and uh, everything. You know, she was smart. She had all the connections. She had all the power. She was a lot of fun to hang out with. So, I mean, how could you not be attracted to her? You know what I mean? I think everybody was attracted to her. We sort of started flirting back and forth. 
And no matter what job or junket or piece that we would all be working on, he'd always wind up every day in my office, end of business. We had a lot of the same likes. We liked to drink. We liked to party. We liked to do drugs. So we hit it off immediately. Even though he was a quiet, shy kind of guy, but he had a presence and I was the complete opposite. Not shy, not quiet. And I had a big presence. He told me later that he had been told, stay away from her. She'll, like the songs said, she'll eat you, chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. What was your nickname? Maneater. My crews always knew that if I set my sights on someone, that was the end of them. He had been told that. He had been warned. So he kept his kind of cautious distance from me in that aspect. But then it was inevitable. We got together. It was fabulous. It was a whirlwind relationship. We simply adored each other in all aspects, not just because we would help each other out in the news. I always made and got stuff that we both needed to party. It was just inevitable that we would get together. And it was always a lot of fun to hear we were going to be assigned to go to Managua because Cookie would be there. So here you go. Great. We'll see Cookie. That's how it worked. You know, because she's my friend and she's my, you know, my girlfriend. But besides that, even other people, oh, you're going to go to Managua? Great. We'll see Cookie. And I think he actually pushed for assignments in Managua. He said he didn't really like Nicaragua. Of all the places he went to, he wanted to go there because he knew he was going to have so much fun. I can't stress enough that it wasn't just about the partying. It was the camaraderie that we all had. In a war zone, you need to have love. You know, you need to have friendship. It's very, very important because you don't have anything else. So the spiritual thing between me and Cookie was like that. It was a desperate spiritual connection to make it through what we were going through. We were together for putting salve on the wounds. I needed that, and she provided it. You know, I think maybe I provided it to her, too, in a way. Maybe we said the word love, maybe we didn't, but I always thought of him as that love interest in my life there. And it was different, and I think he was also surprised because he was also a very kind of slam-bam, thank-you-ma'am kind of kind of guy, which is why, surprisingly, we didn't even jump into bed together for months you know, we'd sleep in the same bed. It was almost as if we were going to do things differently, which made it that much more exciting. I looked at him as my soulmate. He also had that feeling for me. Things were heating up between them, but they're already starting to spiral. They decided they needed to get away from Managua. We decided we were going to go on R&R to Honduras. It's funny that we would think that going to another war-torn country would be R&R. But yeah, we went to a beach called uh, Roatan in uh, Honduras. John didn't even remember the end result of that trip. He remembered something bad happened. Do you remember the incident that sparked Well, we were just partying, and we were loud, and we weren't your normal variety tourist partier. Okay, here we go. This is where it starts to get weird. I thought it was going to be very funny if Cookie got in the baby crib in our hotel room. This is a little embarrassing. We would role play a lot. I think the crib was supposed to be like a jail. You know, can you imagine her squatting down in a baby crib, <laughs> looking out of the bars like she's in prison or something? I say, Cookie, you should get in that crib. This is where you belong. This tells you how high we were. This is going to be good for you. And she said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Come on, Cookie, get in the crib. I still didn't get it, you know, why that would be a turn on. He said but, you wouldn't do it. Well, yeah, but eventually I, I did. He said he was kind of yelling and, and acting crazy to get you to do yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I eventually I did. You and apparently know. that's the night where a lot of complaints came in. A lot of complaints came in. And believe me, we had the top of the line accommodations. We were throwing money around like there was no tomorrow. And then it ended up with, you guys should leave here and never come back. Were you being pretty boisterous in there? I guess we were. So we got escorted out of the country. He thought that we had just been escorted out of the hotel. I said, no, John. It was the hotel, the city, and the country. 
you know, sometimes when you really, really uh, been like partying or doing war, I mean, that, that goes along with it. You just get kind of whacked out of your head. You know, you don't really relate the way you should in a normal world. You know what I mean? So even on a vacation, you don't act the way you should act. And you don't realize that you're, you're being so weird or so, so strange, you know? But that's what it was. It was like a big wake-up call. Like, wow, you're telling us to leave this island? It took, I think, about a year or two before we could go back to Honduras. Funny story. But it was getting harder and harder for Cookie to hide her demons. And it was becoming all too public. In Nicaragua, there's this huge mansion on a hill. It's called La Casona, the big house. This was property that Roosevelt leased for 100 years. So it was U.S. soil, and it was part of the embassy in a different location. So every 4th of July or any kind of American holiday, the U.S. embassy would throw big shindigs. Local people, local journalists, international journalists, government dignitaries would all be invited. So this one particular 4th of July, big celebration, Always lots of great food and... Fireworks and all that. Fireworks, hot dogs, anything you can imagine for, you know, a 4th of July party. Well, myself and two NBC crew members were there with me. Cameraman John Basco and soundman Juan Caldera, whose sister ran the NBC office in Nicaragua. The stroke of midnight, the party's over. Well, by that time, I... I'm so paranoid, I can't move. I'm in full rigor mortis. I'm sitting on a sofa. I cannot move. I know that if I step foot off the U.S. property, I'm going to be arrested. And why are you so paranoid? Because I'm partying. I'm doing cocaine. Like massive quantities? Obviously, enough to make me not be able to get up off the sofa. And here's John Basco, and here's Juan Caldera, saying, Cookie, you know, they're closing up. you got to go. We've got to get you out of here. It's starting to look weird, you know? She goes to the embassy party. She does a lot of coke. gets too high, and it freezes until you, like, calm down a little bit, and then you can, like, kind of uh, shuffle out of the room, hopefully, and nobody notices too much. How long were you sitting there? Hours. <laughs> Hours. And then the party ended, and I must have sat there another hour. And the Marines, are, they need to go. They need to empty out the place. Is this one of those things where the lights are going off? And the all- lights are going off. You know, last call was an hour ago. Oh, I'm not feeling well. I can't move. But my two friends finally got me off the sofa and out. Happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July. I asked Alejandro Belli, Cookie's close friend and CBS assistant, if he was worried about her. I was concerned, especially when she was she was with Vasco. I mean, Vasco was not very good news for her because she was totally, she loved that disaster. She loved that chaos. And he was, you know, sexy for her. She had all the danger written all around and she loved that. Did it become to define your relationship too much? Were you good for each other? Were you bad for each other? Was it both? We were both. We were great for each other because we were soulmates. We had so much in common. We, we kind of thrived off of each other. The partying did get to be excessive. Did you kind of go farther with him than you probably were used to? Yes, and farther with him than I had ever, and to this day never have repeated some of the things that we did. Was it scary? Of course it was, I mean, it was, it was great. It was intense because our relationship was intense on every fucking level. It wasn't the normal dating. It wasn't the normal partying. Every aspect of our relationship was the most intense that you can be in any relationship. He told me he was worried about you at one point. As any good addict, we each thought we had it under control. Well, that's why I ask if maybe you weren't always good for each other. Was it to the level of toxic, but it was heading in that direction? Look, I I was crazy and I was doing the shit I was doing, but I didn't have it that deep. It seemed to me like Cookie had that 
that element of her personality was deep, so she would just die. And I could see that, and it scared me. Cookie's demons have finally caught up with her. Is the party over? We'll be right back. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Cookie's facing the biggest challenge of her life. I know she's a badass. But so is addiction. So obviously I had problems with drugs. We all know this by now. As I've said before, war journalists, they're always partying. They work hard, they party harder. Because you never know when you're going to die, when it's going to be your last story, your last day on earth. It's not like I was the only person, and that's not to detract from my failings. Everyone partied. Drinking, drugs, Not everybody did everything. I, of course, did everything. Some of us could just stop and not continue all night. Some of us couldn't. I was one of the ones that that couldn't. I thought my problem was drugs. What I didn't realize is that I was also an alcoholic. I had all the telltale signs, drinking alone, drinking in my room, drinking with the guys and drinking them under the table. CBS decided that something needed to be done. It's funny because you met her in an earlier episode, Carla Farrell, producer extraordinaire, who hired me, was now being sent to Nicaragua to confront me and tell me, if you don't go, you will be fired. And I was like, go where? She says, to rehab. You've got a problem. No, I don't have a problem. You know, maybe I do this or that every now and then. No, you've got a problem. And we've got people that are concerned about you because my colleagues were also my friends and we all loved and cared for each other. So it wasn't someone pointing a finger and out of jealousy, oh, we need to get rid. No, it wasn't like that. Were you fucking up a little bit? Yeah. I knew that at any moment 
this whole house of cards could come tumbling down. I mean, I hadn't done any major fucked up that caused a big problem, but I'm sure there were incidents that could have been disastrous, not just for myself, but for others. You think this was a long time coming in a way? It was probably coming before I was at CBS. As you remember, I was married to Chino, the cartel guy, and so that was a whole era. I was partying even before that, you know, when I was a model in New York City. My life has been partying since I was 14. But what people don't realize about addiction is that you first start out, whatever substance you're using, it's your friend. You love the way it makes you feel. And then slowly, it becomes your enemy. And you're always searching for that first high, which you'll never get that one again. Do you think that part of the, I'll say, abuse of alcohol and or drugs is related to the PTSD consequences of being out there in the shit? Covering war is a very, very hard motherfucking thing to do. It's one thing watching shit on TV. It's one thing living in a city like this where there's a lot of crime. But it's another thing living in a war. And it's day to day. War, 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 and everything that comes with it. Assassinations, torture, you name it. Everything bad that another human being could do to a human being is being done in that time. I'm sure PTSD contributed to it, but I was doomed from the moment I was born. Were your parents alcoholics? My daddy loved to drink. My mother did socially accepted prescriptions from doctors, you know, Valium. She had eight kids. She took Valium three times a day. So I was doomed, but we didn't know that back then. Were you angry when, when she confronted you? When I wasn't angry. I was defensive. Oh, come on, Carla, you know me. You know how we all operate. When I first knew Cookie, I sure knew she was a partier. I took part in some of those parties. At the time, I never thought it was a problem in the beginning. As I recall, later on, her level of partying was, uh, was concerning, yes. The reason she was sent is because she wasn't like that. She wasn't a big drinker. She never did drugs. She was always level-headed. And she was always business. Did you feel betrayed by somebody, like often is the case? No, because the way it was told to me was a lot of people I talked about it. God, you just have to picture that there was a discussion at the New York there, office. No, the discussion was in Miami. In Miami, okay. Miami cleared it with New York because they were going to do something different. They were going to pay, and they were going to put me in rehab. It wasn't going to be on my dime because obviously they felt like you just said, oh, it's the war, it's the PTSD. They obviously didn't know my, my complete background. I mean, by that time, what? I'd already been 20 years into the game. It's almost like getting in trouble for your own superpower. Yeah, yeah. I got defensive with Carla. She said, Cookie, don't fight it. If you don't do it, they're going to fire you. But when you hear those words... That's what did it. You have your whole life wrapped up in this. You're at the peak of your powers, too. Exactly. And at this point, people didn't really understand everything about addiction like they do now. Especially Carla. She had no clue about addiction. So in her mind, it was due to me being alone in the war, raising kids, just a lot of pressure. She says, Cookie, take the gift. They're going to pay for it. But where am I going to go? Anywhere you want to go. She says, I recommend Betty Ford. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. So I proceeded to drink two bottles of wine, <laughs> pack my suitcase, and I was on a flight the next morning with Carla. She didn't take me all the way, but she took me to Miami and made sure that in Miami, I got on the flight to California because addicts are always, ah, let me get off here. I'll go next week. They weren't going to take that chance. So she flew with me to Miami and made sure I got on the flight to California. I owe my life to Carla because she really cared for me. She was a really a good friend. And I recently thanked her for saving my life. I would not have had all the life that I had after CBS and the war had it not been for her. Before Cookie gets to the Betty Ford Clinic, I want to introduce you to a true American hero. On April 22, 1978, the Washington Post wrote this about the former First Lady, President Gerald Ford's wife. 
Betty Ford said yesterday she is addicted to alcohol, as well as the medication that led to her treatment at Long Beach Naval Hospital. Mrs. Ford, the 60-year-old wife of former President Ford, was admitted to the California Hospital's Alcohol and Drug Abuse Center 12 days ago. I have found I am not only addicted to the medication I have been taking for my arthritis, but also to alcohol, Mrs. Ford said in a statement read at the hospital by a family spokesman. Mrs. Ford's candor after her operation for breast cancer in 1974 prompted thousands of women to seek frequent checkups and examinations. Experts in the field of drug abuse hailed her similar candor yesterday. What an amazing person. Can you imagine the courage it took for her to stand up in front of the American people and say those words? I'm Betty Ford, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. A few years later, she founded the Betty Ford Center, a nonprofit residential treatment center for people with substance dependence. Look, I'm not saying she invented rehab, but Betty Ford coming out in such a big way paved the roads for millions of Americans to seek the help they so badly needed. That's a freaking hero. When you get there to the Betty Ford... Oh, it's a wonderful story. I'm dressed in a suit. I look fabulous. I've got my briefcase with me. I walk in at the reception desk. They think I'm the new doctor or counselor. And they said, a name, we've been expecting you. And I'm like, well, that's not my name. Well, wait, aren't you the new counselor, doctor? And I'm like, no, I'm the new patient. So they checked me in. And I remember the first night, we're sort of in a group in the rec room or whatever you call it. There's a TV on and it's the news. And it happened to be on CBS and That day, Fidel Castro had flown into Nicaragua and he was holding a rally with Ortega, which I had planned to cover for weeks. The Washington Post wrote this about Castro's visit to Nicaragua. Sandinista leader Daniel Ortega was inaugurated as Nicaragua's president today in a ceremony marked by a surprise visit by Cuban President Fidel Castro. Ortega reaffirmed the Sandinistas' public commitment to respect political pluralism and private property. He said the seven-month-old dialogue with the United States represented a magnificent opportunity to resolve the two countries' differences. In spite of the situation, Nicaragua is not an enemy of the United States. So as I'm watching it, I'm screaming, God, I'm supposed to be there. That's my story. I'm supposed to be there. And a couple of the patients turned to each other and said, man, is she still high? I want some of what she's still on. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? You know what? I did. And I picked up the tricks and what I'm supposed to say. And, you know, there's this thing that says you got to write your first step and write everything a certain way. And I knew exactly. So I was writing other patients' first step for them for money. It was profitable for me in there. How about getting something out of it? I did. Obviously, I got sobriety. And it gets you to the point where you don't want to leave. When you first get there, you want to leave. You want out. But by the time it's over, you don't want to leave. Because at that point, you've got your sobriety and you're scared to go back out in the real world. You don't know what's going to set it off. And they tell you, you have to go back in the real world. Anywhere you go, there's going to be temptation. Looking back, would you say that it worked? It worked for a while. Do you know what made you start partying again? I'm an addict. Being thrown right back into the lion's den, war, death, destruction. Partying afterwards. Still with all the same people, all the same accoutrement, you know, to party with. It lasted maybe about nine, ten months. That's actually pretty damn good. Yeah, it is. It wasn't a structure in wartime for AA groups, and certainly there were no NA groups in Latin America. It was all about the booze there. So I did find an AA group, and I was the only female among all these dirt, poor, humble peasants that literally would just be drinking and sleeping on the streets. And I really liked it. I really did. I said to myself, if they can do it, why can't I? Do you believe in AA? I believe in that 12-step program. Well, you've been sober for 17 17 years? 17 years now, clean and sober. So how long did you go hard (laughs) before you really got sober? I mean, I started at 14. And finished? In my 50s. 
Yeah. My drug of choice was weed. I just like that. But Coke, you know, that was that was my high. That was my jam. I snorted a piece of sheetrock once thinking it was it was a rock. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, when you run out, you're kind of looking around. Did so. you get off on it? No, it burned like motherfucker. Cookie got help and it changed her life. If you or someone you love is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction, there's help for you too. You can talk to someone right now. Call 1-800-662-HELP. Day or night, and it's totally confidential. Next time on Journalista. The smoking gun gets shot down flying over Nicaragua, and the race is on to get the biggest story of the 80s. I'm in Miami on vacation. I get a call from someone in Nicaragua saying, have you heard? No. The Sandinistas have proof now that the U.S. is involved because they caught an American associated with the CIA kicking out supplies over Contra territory. In the skies of Nicaragua. Don't miss the thrilling conclusion of Journalista. The world will never be the same. The Journalista podcast features the stories and voice of Cookie Hood, narrated by Stephen Esteb, produced by Sean J. Donnelly, executive producers Jason Wagenspack, Roy Laughlin, and Ellen Kay, iHeart executive producer Tyler Klang, written and edited by Stephen Esteb, music by Jay Weigel, associate producer and sound design Stephen Tonti, sound mixing by Jesse Solon Snyder, special guests Lloyd Schur. John Basco, Alejandro Belli, and Carla Farrell. This is a production of Journalista Podcast, LLC, and iHeartRadio. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.